I invite you to turn in the Word of God to Daniel 3. You'll find that on page 938 in your pew Bibles, Daniel 3. And I'll read the whole chapter. It is somewhat lengthy, so I will read it somewhat quickly. Daniel 3, all 30 verses. Listen, this is the Word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame and the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods." Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these, those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Next Lord's Day, November the 5th, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. On that day, Christians from around the world gather together in their corporate worship and particularly remember the plight of our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might think that persecution is a thing of a past, but it isn't at all. That's why I thought it was so appropriate, the text that Keegan had chosen, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the reality is that for most Christians, for most of those who name the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, it comes with suffering. Sometimes it comes at the hand of the government, as it does in North Korea. But at other times and in other places, it comes at the hands of militant Muslims or militant Hindus or Buddhists. Sometimes the government intervenes. Most time, the government does not. And these other religions are allowed to have free, their freedom with Christians, to harass them, to burn their buildings, to imprison them, to take their lives. Millions of Christians have sealed their testimony since the going of our Lord Jesus Christ to heaven with their lives, not loving themselves so much 
as they were willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as those who are united with these brothers in faith, through our union with our Lord Jesus Christ, it is incumbent on us that we support our brothers and sisters in whatever way we can, by our prayers and by our gifts. And next Lord's Day, you will have opportunity to help your brothers and sisters around the world with an offering for open doors. But I have maintained throughout all the years of my ministry that we need the persecuted church more than the persecuted church needs us. Sure, what we offer the persecuted church is a blessing to them, and they testify to that. The fact that they know we gather to pray for them is an enormous boost and encouragement to them. But we need them more than they need us, because it is their faith under fire, their valor in the midst of opposition, their resolute determination to confess Christ come what may. That's what we need to encourage us in our Christian life. Because truth be told, we are all too ready to capitulate uh, to the prevailing gods of our culture, to conform to the society around us, to give in and to give Christ second place in the face of the various temptations that we face. We need the courage of our brothers and sisters, their example to spur us on to greater devotion and more resolute faithfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ. And this will become all the more important for us as we see our own society crumble under the weight of its own sin and folly as it pushes aside the theology that has undergirded our society for so many years. And as we run amok in our own foolishness, we need courage to stand firm for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I thought it would be good for us to look at the story in Daniel 3 so that we might have the encouragement of Scriptures to press us on. First of all, let us look at the test that Daniel's three friends face. You might remember that in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that Daniel later on went to interpret for him. And the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had seen was of an image that had been set up, and Daniel told him that he was the head of the image. It was an image made of gold along with other materials, but Nebuchadnezzar was the head of the image made of gold. And at the same time, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar that it was God who removes kings and sets kings up. Well, evidently, this dream gave Nebuchadnezzar an idea. He too creates an image and sets it up. But it wasn't good enough for him simply to be the head of gold. And so the whole image, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, the whole image is one of gold. Then he gathers all the officials of all the provinces throughout his kingdom and commands them at the sound of music to fall down and worship the image. We're not exactly sure if the image represents Nebuchadnezzar 
or whether it represents his gods, or whether it was a symbol of unity to bring his scattered dominion under one religion. But whatever it was, it was a command to worship something other than the one true and living God who had brought his people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land and had given them the command, you shall have no other gods before me. And Daniel's three friends, who knows where Daniel was? Perhaps he was away on business. But Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, as their Hebrew names are, they were there in the crowd. Now, I want you to transport yourself back in time and across the oceans to that place in the plain of Dura. And put yourself there and ask yourself the question, what in the world would you do if you were faced with this kind of command? I'm sure that you've asked that question of yourself more often than not, as you've heard of the plight of Christians throughout the world who were steadfast in the face of temptation to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, what would you do? Well, at one level, it doesn't really have an answer. You would hope that you would be firm. You would hope that you would consider your life as nothing, that you would consider that the love of God is even better than life, so why in the world would I jeopardize the love of God by denying Him? You would hope that God would give you the grace to stand firm. And indeed, that really is the answer to that question. God would give you the grace to do so, because he is faithful who promised. He would enable you to stand firm, to say no to the gods, and to worship the one true and living God. And he gives you that grace, not today, but he'll give you that grace when you need it. Tomorrow's grace is never given to us today. And so you can rest in the confidence of his enabling power. But what is true in those moments of intense persecution and suffering should be true for us in all the areas of our life. Because the fact of the matter is the test, will you worship the one true and living God or will you place him in a second place to appease those who are around you, that test comes to us all the time, every day of our lives. The first commandment is so all-encompassing. It demands the totality of our existence. And it asks us, will we deny ourselves? Will we deny our happiness? Will we deny our own popularity? Because we are bound and determined to worship the one true and living God. And so you're at work, and your coworkers are around you, and there's an off-color joke. What do you do as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you join in the laughter of the crowd, or will you say, no, my master is displeased by such banality and filth. I will not laugh, but stand for him. Or perhaps your employer asks you to lie in order to profit the business. What will you do? Will you stand 
for Christ, for fidelity, for faithfulness? Or will you give in? Or imagine children that you're at school. You don't want to be someone who's not liked by the other students. You want to be part of the in-crowd, part of the popular group of girls or boys. So what will you do to win that position? Will you swear along with the other guys because that's the cool thing to do? Will you be careful not to be too Christian? Otherwise, they might think that you are too special and they don't want to hang around with you? Will you even be willing to be unkind to someone else that the group dislikes so that you would fit in better with the popular folk? These are questions that are asked of us all the time. We're always tested as to our fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just in our interactions and engagements with others, but even in our own private life. As Satan comes to us with temptations, with the pleasures of sin, and he says to us, will you honor yourself and enjoy the pleasures of sin? Or will you deny yourself and honor your God and worship him with heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's not just the persecuted Christians who face the test. It's a test that every Christian faces. Will you be faithful or will you capitulate to the culture? Will you give in to the temptations of our enemy? In fact, in 1 Peter 5, the Apostle Peter says something that I found enormously helpful over the years and thinking about our situation as Christians. Because Peter says to the Christians there who are suffering, first, that they ought not to be surprised that they're suffering because this is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. But he also tells them that they are to remember that all their brothers and sisters around the world are facing the same kind of suffering because we all face the same enemy. Satan hates God and everything connected to God and everyone connected with God. And he goes around seeking to devour us. And so whether it's the state in North Korea, whether it's the militant Hindus in Manipur, India, or whether it's the internet in your home, Satan is attacking us all. And we are all facing the test. Will we be faithful to God or not? Well, that's what these three friends faced as well. And we see that they stood firm in the day of testing. They were not intending to be martyrs. They were not parading themselves before the crowds. They were just going about their business, faithfully serving God in their place. And then some officials, some Chaldeans, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, and then said that these Jews refuse to bow down. They do not pay any attention to you, And they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the situation was that the music began to play. 
And everyone fell down and worshipped. All nations gathered there, represented. And there were three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to do so. Now you have to understand the pressure that they were under. Of course, there was the authority of the king. That in itself was quite intimidating. And we're told in the opening verses of this chapter that it's King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar who had made the command. And then there's the pressure of the crowd. Everyone around them was doing it. What what pressure that places upon us to go with the crowd, to do what everyone else is doing. And then there's the threat of job security. What would the king do if they didn't bow down? They were, after all, the king's officials. And then there was the threat of physical harm, this fiery furnace that they would be thrown into if they refused to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There were pressures to conform. And how easy it would have been for them to rationalize their bowing down before the image. It's it's just my body that is bowing down. The Lord knows that in my heart of hearts I am faithful to Him, and I have no other gods besides Him. Or they could have thought, there is no such thing as gods. Everyone knows that. There's only one true and living God. Everything else is just make-believe. So so that image doesn't actually represent anything. So it's no big deal for me to bow down in front of it. Or they could have thought, if we bow down, we will jeopardize our position. And now we can be advocates for the Jews in the highest courts of the land where the decisions are made. If we bow down and are killed, then who is going to stand for the people of God and for the God of our people? You can imagine that they might have been tempted to rationalize it in some way because that's what we do with sin, to protect ourselves from discomfort. But they stand. They're ratted out by the officials. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, demands an audience with these men. And there is something about these men that Nebuchadnezzar is is quite impressed with. And so he uh, offers them another opportunity. He says to them, verse 50, now if you are ready when you hear the sound of all these instruments, well, well and good. And then threatens them, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then this challenge, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What are these men going to do? Well, you know what they do? They say to King Nebuchadnezzar, you might as well just save your time. You might as well not go through the rigmarole again. As Dale Ralph Davis says, you might as well just save your money and not pay the band for the next uh, rendition of the music. Because it doesn't matter what you do. You could give us seven more opportunities, King. And every time, we would stand. We will not bow down to this image that you have made. They were resolute. We'd rather die than deny 
We'd rather burn than turn. We will not give in. Now what was it that enabled them to be so bold and courageous? Well, I suggest to you it's that they were committed to God. Because really it was very simple for these three men. They knew the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It was as simple, as uncomplicated as that. They had one obligation. That was to obey their God, and they were committed to doing so. They didn't complicate things. They didn't make it fuzzy. They knew what was at stake, obedience to their God, and they were committed to God. That's the first thing. But secondly, they had committed themselves to God. Notice what they say. They say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. It's no problem for him. He's the God who, by a word, has created all things. He's the one who delivered us from Egypt and brought us through the wilderness into the promised land. He's the one who has defeated our enemies numerous times. There's no great shakes for him. He's able. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. We know he will because he has never forsaken his people. He has never left them in the lurch. Now, it might mean that he delivers us from your hand by allowing us to live But they're not manipulating God. They recognize that one of the ways that God might deliver them is by allowing them to die. And when they die, then they're taken a glory, delivered from the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't matter one way or the other. Our God will do what is right. We are committed to obeying him, and we have committed ourselves to him so that he would do whatever he thinks is best. So it doesn't matter what you say, O king. Be known to you. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's a reminder, isn't it, that that's what we need to know as Christians. If we're going to live faithfully to Christ, we need to know who our God is and what our God requires of us. It's as simple and as uncomplicated as that. Know who our God is and know what our God requires of us and commit ourselves to God and commit ourselves to obeying His commands. Now, I'm sure that some of you might be thinking, well, I could never do that. These are giants, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing in the face of all these other people who are bowing down to this image. I could never do that. Well, it might be helpful to know that they didn't do it alone. They did it together as brothers, as a band of brothers supporting and encouraging each other to remain faithful. But even more helpful for you, for your encouragement, so that you wouldn't become downcast and think that there's no way I could possibly do that, is to know this that they didn't do it in their own strength, that the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Spirit who was upon them. Because what they did back then is what our Lord Jesus would do 
some years later. You might remember how the New Testament highlights the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was committed to doing the will of God. Remember in the temptation in the wilderness when he was tempted to by the Satan to disobey God, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, you shall worship the Lord, and him only shall you serve. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he summarizes the whole life of the Lord Jesus Christ, he summarizes it with one word, obedience. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And if there is anyone who should have shrunk back from the consequences and repercussions of faithfulness to God, it would be Christ because obedience meant the cross and the condemnation and the curse. And yet our Lord Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. He was committed to God and then he committed himself to God. Remember what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what these men did. We will not serve your gods because we will serve the one true and living God. And we commit ourselves to him confident that he will do with us what is right. And we have no qualms or fears about that. And so Nebuchadnezzar is true to his word. He's filled with fury at the insolence of these three men. His expression was changed against them. That is, it seemed like he was quite fond of them, but when they resisted, he became angry with them. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it usually was. Then he asked some mighty men to grab these men, to bind them, and they were thrown into the furnace. And I don't know if you caught this fascinating detail In verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame and the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the burning, fiery furnace and remained unhurt. That is, the tables have turned. The enemies of the king are spared, and the friends of the king are judged. It's a powerful illustration of what our Lord said in Matthew 16, verse 25. For whoever would save his life, like the king's officials did by bowing before the image, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that is, refusing to bow, jeopardizing their existence, whoever loses his life will find it. There is never, my dear brothers and sisters, there's never any loss in following the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never be your debtor. 
You will never miss out on anything if you are faithful to him. You may lose your life, but you've lost nothing. It's the way of gaining it. And so Nebuchadnezzar throws the the three men in. They're in, bound, but the fire loosens their their, their binding. They're walking in the midst of the fire. But what is so astonishing to King Nebuchadnezzar was that he sees not three men, but four. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And indeed it was. So three men went into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar sees four. Now who is that fourth man? Some suggest that it's an angel sent by the Lord. That's possible. I like to think that it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ visits his suffering servants. We know that uh, there are these pre-incarnate visitations of Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures. You know, uh, the angel of the Lord went and visited Abraham and visited uh, Samson's parents. This is Christ appearing to his people before he took upon himself human flesh. He came in the form of man, like, like some of the old Scots used to say, uh, Christ tried on the clothes of his incarnation before he actually came to earth. But I think it's entirely possible, it's probable that the one who looks like a son of the gods is actually the son of God himself. Because that's exactly what you would expect of Emmanuel, God with us. That when he sees his servant suffering for his name's sake, for faithfulness and fidelity to the truth, that he would come and visit them. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus does. He might not save them from the fire, but he does promise in Isaiah 43, verse 2, that when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame will not consume you. The Lord promises that he will be with his people, come what may. You remember the great 23rd Psalm, and the center of the psalm is, for you are with me. That's a promise that we need to hang on to so tightly, so that even though everyone else is against us, Even though, children, we have to sit alone at lunchtime because no one else wants to be our friend because we're too much like the Lord Jesus Christ. Know that you're never alone at lunchtime. That though you might not see him, the Lord Jesus is sitting right beside you. This is such a wonderful solace to the people of God. I remember reading about the great missionary John Payton, often in desperate states, straits rather, with uh, the enemy surrounding him with their muskets lowered, uh, or their muskets leveled against him. And, And he would say, that promise from the Lord Jesus, and lo, I will be with you always until the end of the world, was so precious and sweet to me, because I knew that even when I stood alone, I did not stand alone. Reminds me of what uh, Rutherford says, may the crosses of Christ come to me as long as Christ comes with his crosses. 
and he promises to do that. He is with his, these three friends in the midst of the fire. That's an encouragement to you. You don't need to worry about a thing. You're faithful to the Lord. Confess his name. Stand for him. In the midst of a world that is collapsing, you stand for Christ, and you'll never stand alone because he loves his people, particularly when he sees them in affliction. And then the evidence is there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded to come out of the fire, and they come out. And everyone can testify that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. And it was that mighty intervention of God in their lives that caused praise to God to arise. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then makes a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. That is, the three friends' fidelity to God resulted in praise to God. That's an important thing, isn't it? I wonder if anyone has ever praised God because of something they've seen in your life. I mean some unbeliever because they saw your stand. They saw your courage. They observed your willingness to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. And they said, what a God he must serve. You see, if, if, if you're willing to, to give up God, to stand by while he's mocked or ridiculed or scorned, to be unwilling to stand for him in the face of danger, then, then that says a lot about the kind of God you have, doesn't it? Why would I worship a God that you're ashamed of and embarrassed about? But when they see that you count the glory of God as supreme in your life, well, that makes them stand up and take notice. It might not lead them to Christ. Nebuchadnezzar, after all, speaks about the the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't say, my Lord and my God but it does resound to the praise of God, at least in some way. And here this evening, as we read the story of these men, as we see their story replayed to our mind's eyes, we too stand up and bless the Lord. What a God He is, one so worthy of praise and adoration, one worthy of giving one's life for Because he is not only the great creator of all things, but he's our great redeemer in Jesus Christ. They stood for God. God stood with them. And we stand with them and with the church of all ages and say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power and blessing and praise. And one day we'll stand 
with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before that throne. And that multitude that no one can number from every nation, language, and peoples. And say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. What a day that will be. So press on, my dear brothers and sisters. Let nothing dissuade you. He is faithful and he will keep you. Let's pray together. Our dear Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to belong to you and to know you as a God of sovereign power and tender grace, to know that we can commit ourselves to you and all things will be well and good. So give us the grace to do it. Give us the courage. We pray for those in our congregation who have taken a stand for Christ and it has cost them in some way, perhaps Friends have left them. Relationships have been strained. They felt alone. And we pray that you would uh, strengthen our brothers and sisters, that you would come alongside them, that they would know your remarkable presence and your calming grace. And give us all the courage we need to stand for the Lord Jesus. We pray again for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Thank you for them for their testimony, for their reminder, and give us the same spirit that enables them to follow Christ, committing to obedience to you and committing themselves to your fatherly care. Go with us, we pray, in this coming week. Help us to do all that we do for your honor and glory. Give us a single mind for your honor and praise. And hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us stand together and sing number 27B.